Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Robin Steedman about creative hustling, women making and distributing films from Nairobi. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, This is is a brilliant and fascinating book, and I think it's got um, a, a sort of great case study in of itself, which is really interesting. But I think it's got quite a lot of important lessons for kind of uh, global media, global creative industries uh, studies. And I suppose the place to start with the book um, is what got you interested in writing about women in Nairobi's film industry? And and specifically, I'm, I'm asking about Nairobi because when I was reading the book, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll ask about, you know, sort of uh, the Kenyan context, the kind of broader context. But there's something really specific about Nairobi going on uh, that kind of drives the book. So yeah, what what got you interested in in writing about it? All right. So I'd had a long interest in African film and media, and it all kind of got started when I was doing my master's degree, and I was uh, writing about uh, films about election violence, um, of all things. And um, I got to do some research in Kenya for that. And it was through that case study that then I got familiar with the fact that in Nairobi, there's loads of women making films. And we know as film scholars, as media scholars, that an industry dominated by women or even one where they have a really significant presence is unusual. Um, so I, I I got really excited by that, um, trying to understand, you know, why have women been successful in this place? Um, and when I started, I also thought, okay, yeah, Kenyan, Kenyan cinema. Um, but the more time I spent in Nairobi, um, and in the end, I spent eight months there on fieldwork, um, the more I realized that this industry was happening uh not within Kenya, but within Nairobi specifically, within that capital city. Um, And I wanted to unpack what it was about that specific place um, that was shaping the careers of female filmmakers. Um, And so I think what was one of the things that was really interesting 
as I got to know more about uh, filmmaking in that area was that women were both making kind of fantastic films that would be screening at festivals. I saw a few in London um, at an African film festival, um, but that there was so much more going on in the city as well. So when I was initially framing the project, I thought, okay, I'll look at these kind of successful filmmakers who have this big international presence. Um, And the more time I spent in the city, the more I realized that that was a really limited way of thinking about their work, that they actually did so much more than that. And when I broadened the lens a bit from a kind of classic film studies case of kind of festival cinema, um, I could really see how many more women were actually working um, in that space. Um, so I, th- I guess, yeah. sorry, no, go ahead. I was, I was going to say I, I, what, what sort of struck me as you were talking there is this is what you're talking about as creative hustling, I guess, uh, which is obviously the title of the book, but um, that, you know, that sense of all of these uh, creative industries, women doing more than just, you know, sort of making films. Is, is that what's captured by creative hustling? Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, that I'm, with that concept or that framing, I'm trying to understand kind of women's careers more holistically. So both the the big festival uh, films like, you know, Winnery Kahio's Rafiki, uh, which has made a big splash uh, these past few years, but also the commercials made for NGOs, uh, documentary films, short films, everything else that goes into making a making a career um, in a film industry, because the you know, the big films, the ones that get the most academic attention are are not being made, you know, that frequently. They're really difficult to finance. They're difficult to make. Um, and so with creative, with hustling as a concept, I was trying to understand how do careers kind of keep going? Um, and then the fact that there's you know, within the city of Nairobi, it's it's the capital, it's the economic heart of Kenya, it's the kind of NGO hub of East Africa, it's got a huge development industry, that there were a lot of places for um, these female filmmakers to work, um, to get jobs, to keep themselves going as they pursued their creative projects. Um, and I was trying to see how they, how they navigate that um, and kind of all of the, you know, bread and butter jobs, um, as one of them said, that allow that those kind of amazing creative signature productions to to come into being. Yeah, <clears throat> we're going to sort of drill down in, in, into some of those um, as we get into to, to the sort of um, key chapters in the book. But before that, I guess there's another bit of introduction and context that, you know, many listeners might be aware of, um, you know, a couple of the films you'd, you'd mentioned, a couple of the filmmakers that are in the book, but probably, um, you know, don't have that sort of rich, detailed uh, context and, and background on uh, filmmaking in Nairobi. So I wonder if you could give like a, I suppose, a kind of little bit of a history as, as the first chapter of the book does, uh, or, or maybe, you know, some, some kind of key um, historical trends, but particularly in the context of why it is these women are not getting supported by the state, they're not getting kind of recognised nationally. Um, What's the sort of, I suppose, background story uh, of women in Nairobi's film industry? Okay. Yes, so so you're right that there's um, remarkably little state support for this industry, and that's that's really always been the case. Um, And back in uh, the 1990s, 
uh, or early 1990s, women first started making films in Nairobi. Um, kind of few of them, uh, not so many, um, but for example, Saikati by Anne Mungai. Um, and it was, a, it was really difficult for her to make that movie. There was, I mean, yeah, very limited uh, support to make it and a certain amount of, um, I think, discrimination against women at the time that kind of kept that she really had to fight through that to be seen um, not as a woman, but as a film director, as she put it. Um, but things really started changing around uh, the turn of the new millennium when um, Judy Kabingi uh, made this movie called Dangerous Affair. Um, and that one is, I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, it's so much fun. Um, but it's, as you would think from the title, about this love triangle, dangerous affair. Um, it's maybe a little bit melodramatic, but but it's a really good time. And that really was a pivotal moment of people seeing, you know, cool, urban, young people in Nairobi um, for the first time on screen. Um, and that was, I think, a kind of a key moment in starting um, different kind of filmmaking in the city and was definitely something that inspired um, other female filmmakers. Once, you know, Judy Kabingi made that film and um, and made other films and, and more and more people started making films, I think more women got, got into it. Um, and just seeing, I think that it was possible for, you know, someone entrepreneurial uh, to, to kind of make a film, um, that you didn't need a lot of support to do it institutionally from the state, but just kind of going out there and, and doing something was possible. Um, and that's really how films are made in Nairobi to this day. Um, and then I think um, a big significant kind of institutional change uh, in Nairobi was in, I think it was 2013, um, but forgive me if that date's not exactly right. Um, when Judy Kabingi, that same director, started DocuBox, uh, which is a, um, a film fund for documentary film in East Africa, um, who've released some amazing new films um, like New Moon by Philippa and DC Herman um, and a few others, and has really been, a, I think, a shaping force in creating um, another kind of media in the city, um, creative documentaries that are not kind of NGO-focused educational documentaries, um, but something really creative and another kind of art form. Um, and again, you know, that's that's helmed by a woman. They've, they've put out a lot of great films, and I think that's, that's something that's really shaping the city. Um, and shaping that that kind of media space, um, whereas even today the the support from um, the government is is pretty insignificant. Um, and that was something that every filmmaker I said I interviewed said without question that you know why would we look there? They don't they don't do anything for us. They don't think about us. I mean, you, you mentioned there, um, I guess, kind of uh, a couple of things about genres, about uh, the the sort of genres and and, and the kinds of film. Uh, that some of these women are, are kind of working in and, and working with. And obviously you've come back to uh, the state support issue. And I, I was struck, um, I guess, kind of right the way through the book that um, partially you're telling a story of really kind of global networks of, of filmmaking um, that are in, in some cases kind of much more important and, and supportive than um, kind of local um states or, or national governments and we'll, we'll sort of un unpack that in a couple of ways but um, what is the sort of international context and, and what kind of um, I suppose international support is that 
to begin with, but also what kinds of um, films are successful in that kind of international context, you know, which, which kinds of films travel. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point that, you know, not all of their films travel. Um, it is a specific kind. Um, and I think that's why also when I was starting this project, I thought, okay, you know, really wonderful dramas that are kind of have a really deep kind of political exploration of, say, something like the post-election violence um, that happened in 2007 in Kenya, um, or a really deep exploration of, you know, gender norms is what's characteristic of this cinema. Um, but I think it's it's actually that that's what's characteristic of the films that that travel the widest, that they have kind of extroverted content, meaning that they engage with um, kind of an issue that extends beyond their specific context, whether it's climate change or gender equality or so on, um, and that they meet a particular production value. Um, you know, the, these films, they're the ones that travel, uh, films like Rafiki and Something Necessary, um, and even Saikati, uh, which was the first, um, have a kind of international production value. If you went and saw them in a film festival, um, you would think, yes, this is this is the style of of movie. Um, you know, the the sound is great, the images are crisp. It's you know, it's cinematic, um, and and isn't kind of locally um, bound. Um, which isn't to say that they don't have a local resonance. I think they do. I think that's um, absolutely true that they do. Um, but they're stylistically internationalized, um, is how I say it in the book. Um, and yeah, I think it's those are the kind of films that travel on the international film festival circuit uh, for African cinema. Of course, those aren't the only networks um, or international networks of African cinema. Um, the Nollywood model um, is another and a completely different one. Um, and the filmmakers that I was talking to mostly weren't making films in that way. They, for their kind of signature uh, creative productions, the ones that they, if you asked, hey, you know, can you tell me about your movies? Those are the ones they would start with, um, are kind of ones that will travel on a festival circuit. Um, they have that, that style. Um, and those are also the ones that will get support from kind of international production funds, um, which are often also run by film festivals, um, like the IDFA Bertha Fund um, from the International Documentary Film Festival of Amsterdam. Um, you know, that that's a significant fund supporting African cinema. Um, and so, you know, they, they need to appeal um, on that in that space. I was slightly struck by, uh, I guess, the kind of, what, what word would I like, sort of pushback against that. And, and one of the things you try and do all the way through the book is, you know, really uh, bring out the agency of your uh, participants, your, your women filmmakers, who are not just kind of, you know, bound by the international style um, that, you know, kind of does well, but are also trying to sort of challenge things. And one of the ways this comes through is is them grappling over access to television. Um, and again, you know, it, it's sort of um, quite interesting in the book that the book has got this concern with what sort of films work on television, what are the kind of constraints to uh, to get involved in, in, in TV. Because obviously, you know, usually when we think about international films, as you've described, we'd be thinking about film festivals and particular uh, tropes of, you know, quality or 
um, I think you said, you know, kind of cinematic, um, you know, sort of values. So what, what are some of the ways that kind of, uh, I guess, uh, women filmmakers um, in Nairobi act uh, entrepreneurially to sort of break these constraints? Yeah, I think the kind of key way um, is that they are kind of extremely experimental um, in kind of what they're willing to make and what they're willing to try. Um, that, you know, everyone I spoke to really was making so many different kinds of media, whether, and, you know, the full length feature documentaries, feature films, short films, commercials, television, and so on. Um, but to try to just see, you know, try it out, see if it'll work. Um, and when I was there, there was, uh, around, uh, 2015, there was a lot of interest in, uh, you know, streaming platforms, uh, that was kind of becoming really important. Um, but also say, for example, um, Dorothy, uh, Getuba, uh, a filmmaker who works a lot in television was talking about, you know, the possibility of starting a platform of saying, you know, why sell my content to other networks? Why don't I see if I can start a network? Um, and I think it was that kind of thinking that was, was happening a lot of just trying something out or realizing, okay, it's really difficult to sell films, um, to television stations, but maybe it would be better to try to, you know, make a series, um, using those same skills, but trying to do something that was a bit more commercially viable. Um, and just a lot of different experimentation in how films could be made um, and really doing a lot of different things at the same time. Um, ones who were trying to finance a feature would also try to do something in television. Um, and really just that that flexibility um, was incredibly important. What about censorship? So um, sort of in the middle of the book and, and you know, partially in, in that context of getting things like uh, finance packages put together for, for films, this question of kind of censorship com comes up. And I was really intrigued, um, I guess, by both, you know, kind of formal issues of censorship and then, you know, the kind of, uh, I suppose, kind of in, informal expectations about, you know, what kind of films um, will sell, what sort of themes are important, what kind of films women, um, you know, can, can make. So what's going on with the, um, I suppose, the kind of censorship regime, both formal and informal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, I mean, Kenyan film in the last few years has uh, really unfortunately gotten um, a lot of press for censorship. Um, they banned Winari Kihu's film Rafiki, um, which is about, uh, you know, it's a queer love story about teenagers. It's really beautiful. Um, that was banned um, a few years before. Stories of Our Lives, which was also about queer love, was was banned. Um, and, you know, for kind of, in the censor's mind, contravening public morality. Um, so, you know, a really conservative uh, view from the censors, of course, um, and obviously not one um, that I agree with. Um, but that limited that kind of cinema. Um, but of course, you know, Stories of Our Lives was banned and Rafiki was still made um, after that. That came out several years after. Um, but what was, so I think there is that that kind of clear censorship that comes to, comes out most strongly um, on, on that issue. Um, but a lot of kind of market censorship to contend with 
that say, for example, um, Judy Kabingi, um, that that filmmaker of Dangerous Affair and and uh, founder of DocuBox, also made um, a TV show um, a few years ago, um, and it was one she said she was kind of incredibly proud of, poured so much effort into. They shot everything, um, and then the station never aired it, um, and you know because the the sponsor of the show changed and they they didn't want. Um, you know, these scenes of kind of young people partying um, and the show was was kind of set around a bar. Um, so, you know, in the end, she put in all that effort. And of course, a lot of people put in that effort and it just never went anywhere. It never got seen. Um, and, you know, that those stories came up a lot of, you know, just being kind of at the mercy of a distributor. Um, or an exhibitor um, or a network um, to kind of shape where a film or a series would go. Um, and so I think that was that was probably the thing that was more significant in kind of stopping the kind of screen media content from moving um, for these filmmakers, um, as opposed to the really explicit um, censorship which of course um, happened in in some quite big cases, but I think it was that that other kind of quieter censorship by the market um, that was really shaping what was going on here. I mean, finding an audience is is obviously you know kind of tricky in, in that context. But towards the end of the book, you you sort of um, explain, and, and I was really intrigued by this, the way that sort of cinema uh, as a you know the physical entity of the movie theater is only in some ways, a kind of minor part um, of how um, media circulates. And, and I wonder if you could say a bit about that, about, I guess, um, you know, you've mentioned sort of television and streaming platforms, but I suppose the kind of former question, what, why is the movie theatre, you know, why is the kind of cinema building not as sort of crucial as, as maybe we might expect it to be? Yeah, I think the role of cinemas is really interesting. Um, and the the films of these Nairobi-based uh, female filmmakers do occasionally screen in cinemas in Nairobi, but overwhelmingly, uh, if you spend time there, they're screening, you know, American movies, Bollywood movies, um, kind of blockbusters from abroad. Um, and there's not that many cinemas in Nairobi. I mean, they are there, um, but in say eight months in Nairobi, they never screened a film by a female filmmaker from Kenya. Um, and I think some of it is that the content, um, yeah, I think it's that they're, those theaters commercially are, are interested in ticket sales and they think that they'll sell more tickets on kind of foreign movies um, that have, you know, where they can put posters all around town that people will have heard a lot about. Um, and that just don't don't make space for films from Kenya. Um, but also, I think it's it's a question of building a market. So, for example, um, I went to one event of um, showing some Kenyan movies. Um, none of them were uh, were by women. It was this event by the Riverwood Ensemble, um, and there was hardly anyone there. Um, I think we were ten people in the cinema, two of whom I invited. Um, and I think it's for that that people don't expect to find Riverwood films um, in a cinema. They buy them on DVDs or, or now I imagine would, would probably watch them online. Um, 
And so your your cinema going audience isn't expecting to to see that, um, and the audience that Riverwood has isn't expecting to go to a cinema to find it. Um, so I think that that that's also shapes that media space um, where you expect to see that content and how you can know about it. Um, and of course, you know, uh, getting the word out about a film is expensive. Um, and your audience has to know where where to look and that it will be there. Um, and I think that the the cinemas also have to believe in those films. Um, and they're much more likely to bet on Hollywood and Bollywood. Um, and this also is, um, it's fairly typical um, in other places in Africa. Um, it's the same situation in Ghana that, that cinemas just... They don't bet on local filmmakers. Um, they they look to international ones more until local filmmakers prove themselves as kind of commercially viable, um, which of course is is a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Yeah, very very much so, and it's you know almost precisely the kinds of uh, framing um, that we find in other you know cinema industries, film industries, but other creative industries around questions of. Um, you know, bringing new filmmakers, making filmmaking more diverse and um, part of the structural reasons why things are so difficult. Well, one thing I'm intrigued by, and this, it sort of comes early in the book, but I think runs all the way through is, um, I suppose, the kind of intersections between things like like gender and, and say, social class. And, and one of the things that, that maybe as, as we sort of begin to draw to a close that I might get you to you know think about or, or highlight to the listeners is um this kind of intersectional perspective that the book tries to grapple with and again you know to sort of formulate uh, a question rather than just uh, throw a comment at you what what is the sort of the role of things like social class i mean um do you have to be you know part of a wealthy nairobi elite to make it as a woman making films in nairobi are there roots in um, for, you know, sort of, uh, say, class diversity as well as gender diversity in Nairobi's film industry. Yeah, thank you for mentioning this. I think that the intersection of, of gender and social class is essential to understanding this case. Um, when I started the project, I was interested in, in looking at women. Um, and as I was doing the research, realized that the female filmmakers that were kind of in Nairobi were middle class. Um, and that that's essential that they were um, often had been kind of educated abroad um, or had traveled, um, which is, you know, a, a certain like a big marker of, of privilege, of course, but that they were just that that. So they had those kinds of experiences. And I think it was vital in in a lot of different ways. So say, for example, um, the bread and butter work that would sustain these um, small production companies and these filmmakers um, was, say, making films for NGOs um, and the development industry. Um, so being able to kind of speak that language, uh, work in that way, be kind of read in a particular way by the development industry as, you know, a partner, a collaborator, rather than someone, you know, in need of development um, was essential to getting that work. Um, and that was something that they could, you know, access as, you know, university educated women who, you know, were all kind of native English speakers. Um, the language matters, of course. Um, and you know, so they could they could access those jobs. Um, also, that 
um, kind of skill and experience in, in navigating kind of an international circuit is important, say for attracting the interests of production funds, about making the most of a film festival, um, that that has to do so much with social class, um, with the, you know, the, and the kind of networks they had as, as middle-class people, you know, having a more affluent network is kind of essential in trying to, you know, finance a film to, to get the word out, out there, the, to know the right kinds of people. Um, and so I, I think that I didn't, I wouldn't say it would be impossible for, for someone who wasn't middle class um, to make films in this space, um, but to make them in the way that the filmmakers I interviewed typically did, I think involves that kind of class position. Because um, in the city, uh, I, you know, I mentioned Riverwood briefly, but it's another industry that's generally kind of working class, uh, making films in much more of a Nollywood way, often like very uh, low budget, um, made quite quickly and in vernacular languages. Um, and the filmmakers, the Nairobi-based female filmmakers my book is about, didn't make films that way. Um, that was a kind of another circuit, another way of making movies. So I think there's multiple ways of being a filmmaker in the city. Um, and to do what these women were doing, I think that having that more affluent middle-class background really was essential. We talked a bit already about uh, creative hustling um, and, and you kind of mentioned uh, the idea of, of sort of hustling being crucial um, to, to the work you were doing. But as we're kind of wrapping up, I'm, I'm intrigued to know, I, I guess, where hustling sort of fits in terms of the book's contribution. Um, is hustling, I guess, a kind of framework that we might use more when we're thinking about media industries, filmmaking, creative industries, um, towards the very end of the book, I, I kind of got the sense that hustling was sort of a creative practice in, in its own right. Um, so, yeah, where, where does hustling kind of fit in, I guess, in, in terms of understanding creative workers? Yeah, I think I mean, I would certainly like hustling to be used more um, in creative industry studies and film studies. And I think it's I mean, if I was to define it, I'd say it's entrepreneurially navigating precarity. I mean, these women, I mean, I've just talked about them being uh, relatively affluent, and they certainly are in a Nairobi context. But in a global film industry context, they're they're still absolutely marginalized. I mean, African filmmaking is marginalized in the kind of global film economy. Um, we don't know that much. We don't know near enough about it um, as scholars, and it doesn't get enough attention. Um, and I think with hustling, I'm I'm trying to draw attention to the fact that, you know, it's both kind of really precarious. It's really difficult to make films uh, in Nairobi, um, but there's also a lot of agency going into it, that these filmmakers are doing something. Um, and in some ways, if you looked from you know, a, a European angle and, and thought, wait, but there's no state support. How are, how are independent filmmakers doing it? Um, it looks like this, this industry shouldn't exist. Um, but when you get there and kind of, I think, take a, a different direction, um, focusing on the kind of entrepreneurship of these women and take a holistic view of their whole careers and, and all the different types of media that you make, you see that, ah, like so much is happening, um, but it, it requires a different way of looking, um, assume, 
and assuming that you know kind of that agency is is possible that um, people in kind of precarious contexts are you know improvising and being experimental and creating and trying their their very best to create the kind of careers um, that they want to have. Um, and we see in this case of Nairobi-based female filmmakers that they're doing it successfully, um, that there's a lot happening, um, and that I think more space in our you know, scholarly field needs to be given to these kinds of filmmakers and these kinds of industries. Um, because I, I think they're they're probably a lot more typical than we might think um, that filmmakers can operate without the kinds of support um, that they have um, in, say, the global north, um, in some cases, at least. In terms of what's next for, for your work, I mean, it, it's always a bit sort of slightly mean uh, when someone's finished a really kind of major book project um, to then be like, so <laughs> what else have you got? What are you going to, you know, sort of do next? But it struck me um, reading the book, you know, there's a whole range and, and you've uh, actually just articulated this almost kind of perfectly um, for me. You know, there's a whole range of um, different research agendas that might flow from the book. There's, you know, kind of um, important, I guess, contributions about re um, orientating or repositioning how we uh, do the kind of study of global media industries and as you know as well it's a kind of fascinating book um, in, in its own right so are you thinking in terms of more research in this area or are you going to be doing something kind of completely different as your next uh, project yeah I think kind of both um, my my current research uh is in creative industries in Ghana, um, another case. Um, and there I'm, I'm looking more at a creative industries framework. Um, so about film, but also about theater and fashion um, to understand kind of how, how kind of creative work happens um, in, another, in another context that's also kind of precarious and, and understudied as well. Um, so I'm interested in seeing, you know, how, how, do, how do creative workers do it. Um, how can we understand like how how that artistic production happens? Um, so there's that that work in Ghana, um, but I'm also really interested in studying um, the economy of documentary filmmaking. I talk about DocuBox's production fund in the book, um, but that really got me thinking a lot more about you know kind of after the book about the wider economy of documentary filmmaking in Africa. How does it happen? Um, especially as I see more and more films coming out um, from DocuBox, wondering kind of how else is that situated? How do those films travel? What kinds of international networks are they part of? Um, and what does that mean for, you know, how we understand um, Africa, but of course also more specific uh, places and, and issues within that context? How do we understand kind of African documentary in today? I would say so. That's kind of something I want to want to move into in the future, and what I'm doing right now is that kind of creative industries work in Ghana, trying to understand, you know, how do creative workers hustle in that context. It sounds like it'd be a good uh, follow up book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd I would I would do another, but yeah, it's uh, maybe in a little while. 